0: Last week, if you were here, we concluded with a poignant analogy out of uh, the middle to end of the first chapter in James about this father who left a handwritten note on the counter asking his kids to take out the trash before they went to school. And he got home and the job hadn't been done, so he called them together and had a family meeting and said, kids, what happened? And The kids said, Dad, your letter was admirable. Your grammar, oh my goodness, it was perfect. Your punctuation, flawless. We just loved your handwriting, Dad. We liked it so much that we skipped school today to study trash. And so we called a few friends over. We skipped together. We thought, you had a really compelling argument, Dad, that the trash ought to be taken out. So we did a Bible study, and we learned the Greek and the Hebrew words for trash. We had deep theological discussions, Dad, about trash. And the dad said, what? You kids missed the point. All I ask you to do is to take out the trash. James is making the point in this passage of scripture, as we'll see today, that the point of studying the Bible isn't to study the Bible. The point of studying the Bible is to have a transformed heart and to live differently as a result of what we've studied. We're to not only be, as James puts it, hearers of the word, but also what? Doers of. Of the word. Are you saying, Pastor, that studying is bad? You're like, because if you are, I love this church. I haven't picked up a book since high school, thank you very much. No, I'm not saying studying is bad. I'm saying that studying alone, studying alone is bad. We're also to do what Jesus asked us to do. And we just got done with Mother's Day. How many of you gentlemen know that knowing that she loves chai lattes isn't enough? Honey, I'm thinking about you today, just all day. And and I remembered how much you love chai lattes. And on the way home, I was passing by your favorite coffee shop. And I I just wanted you to know that the thought occurred to me, baby, that you love chai lattes. I was just thinking of you. I just wanted you to know that. How would that go over? I don't have anything with me. I was just reminded. I thought you would appreciate me reminding myself how much you love chai lattes. Or how about... Honey, I I know you love yellow tulips. You wouldn't believe this, but I was at the dentist's office today and and the planters in front of the dentist's office say the most beautiful yellow tulips. It was actually right beside, believe it or not, the flower shop with all the yellow tulips. (laughs) I know you love them, honey. I just want you to know I was thinking about you. James' frustration is that he's got a bunch of religious people. At a big church that he's pastoring with a ton of biblical knowledge. And he's frustrated because while they're not doing a lot, they know a lot. And he's frustrated and thinking, look, Jesus, I've been trying to tell you guys, he was my big brother. Who you are and who he was isn't lining up. He wasn't like you. He didn't just hole up inside the library all day. He was a tradesman. He started a ministry. He fed people. He healed people. He encouraged people. He taught people. He prayed for people. He served people. Jesus, I'm telling you, got stuff done. Why are you so focused on all the academia behind this and completely ignoring the charge to go out and baptize them in the name of the Father and and the Son and the Holy Spirit and and his promise that I'll be with you until the end of the age. Yes, he studied, but he got stuff done too. And those ought to be, how many of you know, the two petals as we've mentioned on every single Christian's bike, knowing the word, doing the word, knowing the word, doing the word. It's not that knowing is bad and that doing is good. It's that knowing without doing is bad. And even doing without knowing is bad. Either way, if you only have one pedal in the bike, you don't go far. It's knowing and doing. James put it this way in chapter 1, verses 22 through 27. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows and their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I mean, could we possibly be reading a more practical piece of scripture? This is so down to earth. This James, Jesus' younger brother. James says, those of you who don't hear but do deceive yourselves. He says, be doers. Somebody here might be like, I know the Greek word for that. I know the Greek word for that. He's like, stop it. Go do something with the knowledge you have. He's admonishing them. He's cautioning them. And then he continues, if anyone thinks he's religious, in other words, if anybody says to himself, hey, I'm pretty mature in this faith thing, After all, this isn't my first rodeo. I've read a few books. I'm on my third, fifth, seventh reading of the Bible. I know a few things. I've made some progress in the faith and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is, what does he say? What's a word he uses? Worthless. And then he tells us this, religion that is pure and religion that is undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Some of you, again, have been a Christian for a while. You've attended a conference or two or five or ten. James is trying to tell you this morning that if you've been around the flower shop for a while, you are vulnerable you're vulnerable he's saying you're vulnerable to the trap that is false religion that's how you're at risk and when the bible speaks of religion it actually usually does so negatively Isn't that something? And James certainly does in this case. But then at the end of chapter one, he redeems the word kind of in a positive way. He juxtaposes pure religion from false religion. And he says, this is what is good and righteous and pleasing to God. And then he goes on to say, take care of those in need. He says, listen, Jesus was my big brother. I know him. And I know that the religion he practiced was altogether different than the religion that you're currently practicing. Same generation as Jesus. Not but a few years after he died and risen, had the church moved from being real, authentic, a beautiful expression of what it was designed to be to something entirely different. And false religion, James tells us, is marked by two things. And we'll spend the rest of our time talking about these things. Self-deception. Self-deception. And forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. Let's talk about self-deception. Self-deception is where you think that because you know a lot, the gospel has changed you. I want to say that again. Self-deception is when you think that because you know the Bible, the word has transformed you. You may remember Paul writing to the Corinthian church, who we would argue to some extent knew the word, and he put it this way. He used three words. He said, knowledge, do you remember? Puffs up. Knowledge puffs up hey, this is the person he's talking to, the person who says, hey, I understand theology now. Hey, I should be a teacher. Hey, I should be a leader. Look how far I am ahead of, and there's always a comparison of somebody else. I should probably rebuke that person. I should probably train that person. I should probably hold that person accountable. I should probably see myself as, as a leader, as a mentor in regard to that person because I'm, well, I'm above him or her. We would never say those kinds of things, but sometimes we think those kinds of things. And we're deceived. We've deceived ourselves, it's self deception. Because what we cannot see when we deceive ourselves is that religious pride can creep into to an otherwise malleable and humble heart. It can creep in. Dolly Parton and Nora Jones teamed up for the most cool song I think I've, one of the ones I've ever heard. It's kind of a bluegrass style song called Creepin' In. You ever heard that song? Creeping in such a cool song. It's talking about water getting into a boot and how the water just keeps creeping on in. It just keeps creeping on in the boot. Pride will creep into the human heart if we don't guard against it. We are well-intentioned, but it can come in. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you volunteered regularly at a soup kitchen? When's the last time you've offered to provide a respite to a foster family? When's the last time you've mowed the neighbor lady's lawn? When's the last time you volunteered in the church? Here's the problem with self-deception. Are you ready? You don't know you're self-deceived. You don't know it. You're blind to it. When you've deceived yourself, you don't know it's you. And for that reason, you're not the best person to diagnose your self-deception. The problem is you have not allowed anybody to disagree with you. You've allowed nobody to correct you. You've allowed nobody to examine you. You've allowed nobody to investigate your heart to ask you tough questions. At the Mill Church... Sunday morning is our hear the word time. Not a lot of doing happens here. We we hear from God. Do you know when we do the word at the Mill Church? We do the word with 410 ministries where we volunteer labor for someone that could otherwise um, find it unaffordable. We meet in life groups and do community service once a semester each Life group, we feed farmers, we go to the lower level, arrive early, and teach Pebble Zone or Rock Zone beautiful children who need desperately to hear that they're the beloved of God the Father. We serve them. We offer hospitality by making coffee or smiling and greeting at someone when they come in the door. We join a care community to keep a family fostering healthier and longer. We adopt, we look after widows, etc. Don't be self-deceived. It's not enough to have knowledge. Who knows the word of God better than most of us? Who tempted Jesus three times quoted scripture each of the three times, as far as we can tell, without having the Old Testament in front of him. Satan did. Satan knows the word of God. Have you ever wondered why, if Satan knows the word of God, does he keep persisting? If he's read the end of the book, he knows he loses. He knows God. God wins. He knows every prophecy has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's got to be warning signs replete through the book for Satan. This is not going to go well for you. Why does he continue to rebel? Why does he just surrender and wave the white flag? It's possible that it's because he's self-deceived. He's convinced himself that he's right. That God is wrong. That he's going to win. That God's going to lose. And you know what? People live like that all the time. I won't reap what I sow. I don't need Jesus I'm not going to go to hell. The second thing that James tells us religion gives us is forgetfulness. Religion self-deceives and religion forgets. And he uses this analogy of a mirror. Thank God for mirrors. Amen? How I many of you wake up in the morning and you're like, whoa? Well, I got to make some changes. My goodness, honey, I'm going to need some more time here. We've all got mirrors. Mirrors are everywhere. They're in our bathrooms. They're on our dining room tables with a candle on top. They're on our car visors. Ladies have them in their purses. We have them on our smartphones. We hit the flip button on the camera, and boom, we've got a mirror. James says that, A religious view of scripture, and we mean religion in a bad way, is like somebody that looks into a mirror and then turns around and walks away and forgets what he or she saw. It'd be like if I got up this morning and I did look in the mirror this morning. And if I looked in the mirror and then walked away, and one of you hollered out during the sermon, how are you doing today, pastor? Really, just tell us all. And I said, man, I'm doing good. I've got long, blonde, flowing locks of hair. I'm clean shaven. I've got chiseled abs. I've got a sculpted chin. I'm doing fantastic. Why are you smiling? <laughs> but I would have forgotten what I look like this morning. Wouldn't I have? I've forgotten. I and mean, let's just face it, for some of us, looking in the mirror is not the highlight of our day, right? It's tough sometimes in the mornings. But still, it'd be weird for us to simply forget what we look like. James was saying that wouldn't happen, but look at how it happens figuratively. You read the word of God... You open the word. It's like looking in a mirror. You see yourself in God's eyes. You see your faults. You see your sins. You see your need for a savior. You see areas that need changing. And then you close the book. You lay it on your coffee table. You walk away and forget everything that God showed you that needed changing about yourself. James says, false religion will do that to you. If it's a rote exercise, if it's about a discipline and not truly about your devotion to your creator and savior, it'll do that to you. You'll check the box, you'll put it down, you'll forget everything that it says. Then he talks about true religion. He says, hey, true religion, true religion, on the other hand, it's helpful. True religion is wonderful. True religion is holy. In true religion, he mentions this seemingly in a random way, but why does he cherry pick this? He says, true religion involves keeping a reign On your tongue. Now he's going to flesh this out a little later in the book. But how many of you have ever regretted something you've said? Am I the only one in the room? Raise your hand if you've regretted something you've said. Once the words come out, one of my favorite comedians, Brian Regan, says they're like butterflies. You know, you you try to grab them and put them back in, and you just can't do it fast enough. They just escape. And they're gone and they're out and they've unleashed damage. They've, they've created harm. And James is saying, don't be deceived. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that prolonged anger is okay. We ought to have self-control as God-fearing men and women of God over our tongue, over our communication, over our letter writing." Over our emailing. That ought to be a part of the bought blood of Jesus Christ. It's washed that away from us. We can indeed live without having a loose tongue. In Jesus society, widows and orphans were among the most vulnerable of people, um, even more so than during our time today. Why, why is that? It's because it was a patriarchal society, as you probably know and and when a husband died they didn't they didn't have the ability for the woman to find child care and 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 have uh, assistance from government and go to work herself. she wasn't allowed to work it wasn't um, it wasn't an equal gender kind of of system. And so when a husband would die, the woman would would hope that her that his brother or someone else were available to come in and take care of she and her children, if not that extended family, if not that some man that God would orchestrate something to work out for a remarriage, otherwise they were in big trouble. Because somebody evil men would come along and see that situation, that vulnerable family, and they would in every way take advantage of that woman and her kids. And a, a bad man would come along and manipulate, and would pimp, and would prostitute, and would sell children as slaves, and if strong young men, even gladiators. And that's the way the society worked. And James is saying real men come into that scenario. And real men love and they cherish and they protect and they provide. That is pure religion. That is holy. That is righteous. And then he adds, And true religion also keeps oneself unstained from the world. This is not world-like meaning unstained from the earth. Like in a cosmic sense, this means unstained from the culture unstained from the environment it's a pejorative and negative use so he's saying is we're to be unstained from evil from satan from sin he's saying don't become polluted don't become defiled don't become corrupted don't get muddied don't get dirtied by sin and so those of us who believe we can read this in two ways We can read this as one who has been already self-deceived and we can interpret it as this. Thank God I'm not one of those dirty people. Thank God that doesn't apply to me anymore. Self-deception. Pride which the scriptures say is the worst of all, what? Sins. Or we can read it as humble people who need a savior and say it's too late. I'm already stained. I'm already blemished. I've said things I can't take back. I've done things I cannot take back. I need Jesus to scrub me, to wash me, to make me new again. Some of us have tried to scrub ourselves by grit and elbow grease and hard work and willpower. And what happens when we do that, if we don't have an identity, a realization that Christ has already done the work, then the Satan, who's known as the accuser of the brethren, or the brothers and sisters, Satan comes along and Satan says, you're a failure. You're a, might I just remind you you're still a pervert? Might I just remind you you're still an addict, you're still an adulterer, you're still an aborder, you're still a thief, you're a murderer, you're unloved, you're unworthy, you're unchanged. You should really stop trying, just stop it. Just quit exhausting yourself. Just go kill yourself. That would really be the best thing for you to do. And you look down and you start to think, it's true. I am filthy. I am alone. The world probably is better off without me. And then his job's done the accuser of the brethren. Then he leaves. He's accused you. He's convinced you. And so false religion comes in and says, no, 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 no. I've got to fight this thing. I've got to clean my own clothes. I've got to stay clean. And Jesus says instead, please wear my clothes. Wear my clothes. You cannot get the stains out. You can't fix it. Give me your soiled, filthy, stinky rags. Please give those to me. I love the scripture that says, talks about Jesus hanging on the cross and says, He became sin. He was physically unrecognizable. We know that from one of the prophets, but He also became our sin meaning he wore our clothes. He wore them and he gave us white, symbolizing sinlessness, holiness, righteousness. And James says, pure religion leaves us unstained with a clean conscience. I just, I felt like this in the first service. I still feel like it. I feel like somebody here this morning, likely multiple people, have for years listened to the voice of God's archenemy and believed the lies of Satan. And though you have expressed, confessed your sins to God, you still feel guilty about stuff you've done years ago. That is not of God. He does not intend for you to carry that weight. God gives us righteousness. He intends to wear those clothes. We can leave today and have a completely clean conscience in his name because of his power, because of his sacrificial work on the cross. Do you remember when people, religious people, asked him, why are, you, why are you healing people? And what did he say? Which one's easier, for me to heal them or to what? Or to forgive their sins? In other words, you thought that was cool. Look at what I can do that has eternal ramifications. Jesus Christ can forgive your sin. You don't, it doesn't matter what it is. You do not have to wallow in it forever. Will you bow your heads this morning? Just going to ask this question. would, would, Would there be anybody here who just said, would say, I'm a believer. I think I'm saved. I love Jesus. But I have just been condemned by the enemy of God. I've just, it's affected my identity. It's affected what, I don't see myself as the child of God. I see myself as the enemy of God. Would you just lift your hand this morning? I want to pray for you. Anybody at all here that just said, I keep dealing with sins from my past? I feel ashamed. I feel dirty. I feel uncleaned. I feel embarrassed. I've asked for forgiveness, but the shame isn't going away. Would anybody say that this morning? Just by lifting your hand. All right. Anybody else? Anybody else? You just can't sleep at night, maybe? It's affecting your patterns? Maybe you overeat as a result of just feeling depressed, and it's just unbearable. Anybody else? Father, I pray this morning that you would speak to the one whose hand was raised. I... Lord, I know you love us enough that you'd even design a corporate experience to help an individual. And I just pray that that person would hear your tender voice and truly experience the forgiveness of sins and know that the clothes that were once worn have been replaced with clothes that are unstained white, unblemished. That because of the cross, this person is spotless. And I pray that out of that identity of new creature, of someone whose sins are forgiven, would come amazing works. I pray they would think of themselves as a forgiven child of God, no longer under the weight of sin. And they'd just live that out in freedom, serving other people, not worried about who to bump into at the flower store, or the hardware store, not worried about who to see, about what relationship maybe has been burned, but that they would just completely trust in you, Lord, as the healer of their past. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I just say that on my heart for all of you is that you have a clean conscience. That's what Jesus affords us. That's the most beautiful way to live with a clean conscience. It's a gift of God. Every good and perfect gift is from the Father above. Amen. Amen.